0: The minute we saw that image of the Earth from space, everything changed. We're still catching up with the consequences of that revelation. Suddenly, in a single moment, we saw that the Earth was not this flat land of infinite horizons, but was in fact a very small blue orb, completely and utterly interconnected. And all of the astronauts have reflected on the absurdity of the notion of the nation-state, and the petty conflicts that tear apart these countries, which are only imaginary lines drawn on a map.
1: Imagine having truly a complete picture of humanity, having spent a lifetime experiencing hundreds of world cultures firsthand, face to face, and welcomed by each one of them. The result would be an extraordinary vocabulary of the human spirit like no other, a celebration of our differences, brought to life through an enormous voice, studded with the poetry of each unique cultural experience. And wouldn't that voice be more important to listen to than anything else you can imagine? As giant capitalistic cultures continue to assimilate and stamp out human diversity faster than all endangered species combined. and as these giants collide and become increasingly more homogenous, never has it been more important to step back and seek to understand and respect different people, different cultures, because to nearsightedly continue means irreversibly harming the treasure of human diversity. I wish I could create an introduction for anthropologist Wade Davis that did him and his work justice, but given the enormity and importance, I can't. The guy has spoken before audiences around the world, published dozens of books, including the bestseller Serpent in the Rainbow, which got made into a movie, and has been interviewed by people way smarter than me. So what I can say is that he will, in the incredibly short time of our conversation, take you not only around the world, but to space and back. He will begin to paint the picture beyond our cultural nearsightedness in a way that will stir your heart and open your mind. So the best way to introduce Wade Davis is to listen. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. (laughs) So what I'd love to do is start our conversation centered on the human imagination and story because it's something I value deeply and... Uh, by the way, have you read Sapiens by Israeli history professor uh, Yuval you all No, I
0: haven't. I, I, by chance, Sam, I've got that ordered and it's sitting in my depot to be picked up, actually.
1: Oh, interesting. Well, I won't ruin it for you, but in the book, he makes the point that there's two things that separate humans from other species. So first, we can create these very flexible systems of widespread cooperation. So unlike bees or ants who can only work in large numbers, but in only one way, or chimps who are really flexible but can only work with other chimps that they know. And the second one is our imagination, that we can create and believe these fictional stories that create a new, much more powerful layer on top of objective reality. So from my perspective, the the Western culture that we have seems to have put all of our attention and focus and energy into these cooperative commerce systems, but our own imagination seems to have been usurped through the business of mass media that kind of controls that imagination for us. But from your perspective, being someone who's truly studied the imagination of people around the world, can you share some of the stories of just how powerful imagination is in cultures who have more time and freedom to invest in it?
0: Yeah, I think Sam, it's so difficult to even begin to um, separate the threads of circumstances that create this extraordinarily complex fabric of of modern industrial society. I mean, it, it, it's so difficult to identify causality or roots, but I think there are certain things we can clearly sort of say about the human experience that are are important. I mean, one of the things that haunts me always is the fluidity of our memory and our capacity to forget. And I think that's a trait that probably was quite useful uh, in an adaptive sense uh, when we were sort of small populations, um, hunters and gatherers. But... In the modern context, it becomes quite haunting because we seem to be able to adapt, for example, to any degree of environmental degradation, having forgotten within a generation how bountiful the world was um, in the time even of our own grandparents. Um, The the I mean the thing that I find fascinating about culture, and I think sort of the most important revelation of our era, in many many ways, it's almost like the moonshot of this generation, and and that is the the revelations of modern genetics—you know, you know—within our lifetime, uh, geneticists have proved the philosophers to be correct. We really are all brothers and sisters, and in that sense, I don't mean that in you know, in sort of invoking hippie ethnography. I mean quite literally. Studies of the human genome have left no doubt whatsoever that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Uh, race is an utter fiction. Um, we're all cut from the same genetic cloth. Uh, we all, in fact, are clearly descendants of a handful of hominids who walked out of Africa some 65,000 years ago and then embarked on this amazing uh, journey, this diaspora that lasted 40,000 years, but 2,500 human generations that carried the human spirit to every corner of the habitable world. But the really interesting revelation of that modern work in genetics is that if we are cut from the same genetic cloth, by definition, we all share the same raw human potential, the same mental acuity, the same human genius. And whether that genius, and I think this is ultimately the lesson of anthropology, whether that genius is invested in technological wizardry, which has been the great achievement of our Western way of being, um, or by contrast, placed into the complex task of unraveling the threads of memory inherent in a myth, is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. So critically, there is no hierarchy in the affairs of culture. There is that old Victorian idea that we somehow went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized to the strand of London has been absolutely debunked by modern science, both anthropology and genetics. Um, There is no progression, evolutionary progression in the affairs of culture. And what this really means is that every culture has something to say, each deserves to be heard. And every culture, in some sense, is a unique answer to a fundamental question, what does it mean to be human and alive? And and so when the myriad of peoples around the world answer that question, they do so in the 7,000 different voices of humanity. And those voices collectively become our human repertoire for dealing with the challenges that will confront us in, in the coming decades and indeed the coming centuries. I mean, I think this is really what Ruth Benedict meant when she said the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for diversity. And by diversity, she did not mean the modern sense of the word, you know, set asides and entitlements for people of gender, ethnicity, or particular background. But the true diversity of the human spirit is brought into being by culture. And when you recognize that, and then you remember what the linguists are telling us with incredible conviction and absolute academic consensus that of those 7,000 languages spoken today on earth, fully half aren't being taught to children. You suddenly realize that we're living through this time where half of humanity's ecological, spiritual, um, social knowledge is being lost in a generation. Uh, And that's a haunting backdrop to our age and it, it doesn't have to happen. You know, a language is not simply vocabulary and, and grammar. A, a language is a flash of the human spirit. It, it's it's a way that the the essence of every culture comes in the material world. I, I once wrote that every language is an old-growth forest of the mind, a, a watershed of thought, an, an ecosystem of social, spiritual, ecological possibilities. And so to lose half the languages of the world within a generation is literally to lose half of the patrimony of of humanity. And I've always found it fascinating, much as I'm committed to the preservation of biological diversity, I find it astonishing that the plight of rare species of insect, bird, and butterfly garner much more attention than the loss of literally half of humanity's um,
1: intellectual legacy. I've mentioned this on a previous show, but I once heard someone say if your vocabulary is limited, your thoughts are limited. So all of this loss of vocabulary and language and tradition because of it and imagination has this impact we can't really even feel. So I think to my earlier question, is there a way to paint a frame around other cultures on this planet today that do invest so powerfully or have such a different construct in their language and in their culture that allows for a much richer and more impactful imagination.
0: You know, I don't know how you could have a more rich imagination than the capacity to send a man to the moon or to reveal the genius of the healing tradition that is ours to celebrate. Allopathic medicine. I mean, none of us, for example, if we tore an arm off in a car accident, we would want to be taken to an herbalist. So none of this is to denigrate the great achievements of our particular intellectual and social lineage. It's simply to suggest, in all humility, that that our culture is not the paragon of humanity's potential any more than any other culture is. And we have achieved extraordinary things by focusing on technological achievement. And we tend, like all cultures, to be myopic. You know, we tend to view um, our world as the real world and other cultures as failed attempts at being us. And we're not unique in that. I mean, the Aztec uh, the the Greeks, you know, the word barbarian comes from the term barbarous, one who babbles. If you didn't speak Greek, you didn't exist. And most indigenous societies, if you translate the name they have for themselves, it's often the people. The implication being that the blokes over the hill are savages beyond <laughs> the pale. Right. I mean, this kind of cultural myopia, which has been sort of the parochial curse of humanity, has been like a tyranny on our imagination since the dawn of consciousness. And I've always argued, as an anthropologist that that kind of myopia is something we can no longer tolerate in a multicultural integrated world. You know, we tend to view these other cultures, even if we're sympathetic to them, as sort of quaint and colorful, as if they're you know, uh, destined to fade away um, because they're somehow failed attempts at being us. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, in almost every case, these societies are dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces, be those forces industrial or ideological. And that observation is, in fact, optimistic in the sense that if human beings are actually agents of cultural destruction, we can also be the facilitators of cultural survival. But I think the real curse is this kind of this uh, veil of cultural myopia so that, you know, we we think of ourselves, for example, as somehow existing outside of time, history and culture, when, of course, our way of thinking is a product of of all of the above you know in our western tradition you can you can trace the roots of this not not by even going back as far as the greeks i mean during the renaissance and the enlightenment you know as we struggled to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith as we struggled to the, liberate the individual from the tyranny of the collective which was a sociological equivalent of splitting the atom we achieved great freedom and great great capacity and great freedom of thought um, but we also dismissed in a single gesture as Descartes said that all that existed was mind material and matter we dismissed it all instincts for myth magic mysticism and above all metaphor and so the world became in a single phrase deanimated such that as Saul Bellow ultimately said science would make a host cleaning of belief and in due course the triumph of sort of secular materialism became the conceit of modernity and we we the notion, for example, that the flight of a bird might have meaning was dismissed as ridiculous, ridiculed. And yet metaphors is a very force that has driven the aspirations of most cultures and often in very positive ways. So, for example, uh, you know, I was raised as a kid in the forests of British Columbia to believe that the forest existed to be cut. That was a ideology that I learned in studying forestry in school and practicing it in the woods as a logger. That made me very different than my friends amongst the First Nations raised in those same forests to believe that they were the abode of hukuk and the crooked beak of heaven. And the cannibal spirits that would have to be embraced during the hamats initiation, such that the wisdom of the wild could, in a sense, be brought back to the community in the potlatch. Now, the interesting thing is not to say who's right and who's wrong. I mean, was that forest mere cellulose and bored feet? Was it the domain of the spirits? Who's to say in That question really isn't that interesting. What is interesting is the observation as to how the belief itself mediates the relationship between a population and the natural environment, often with very different consequences in terms of an ecological footprint. I mean, the First Nations lived here for hundreds, if not thousands of years with a modest Impact, whereas my way of thinking about those forests resulted in their almost total destruction in three generations, and it's similar. You know, you know, I was raised to believe that a mountain was a pile of rock, um, inert, ready to be mined. That makes me different than my godchildren in Peru, raised to believe that mountains are mountain deities, Apus, that will direct their destiny. Again, it's not who's right and who's wrong. It's how the belief system results in a different consequence. And a, a wonderful example of this, Sam, is if we go for a moment to the culture clash, it was probably the most dramatic. I mean, never did two more diametrically distinct cultural... Visions come together um, as in the case of the settlement of Australia. You know, we know from studies of the Y chromosome that the ancestors of the Australian Aborigines were the very first people to walk out of Africa. Within 5,000 years, they had traversed the underbelly of Asia and gotten to this most parsimonious of continents, and then they went walking and they established 10,000 clan territories like a matrix over that most difficult of continents. Now, linking those clan territories was a single idea, which was the dreaming. And the dreaming wasn't a dream. It was a devotional philosophy in which the world both existed and yet was eternally waiting to be born in the human imagination. Now, when the British arrived in Australia in the 18th century, They met a people that looked strange, that had a very simple material technology. But what really offended the British was that the Aboriginal peoples had no interest whatsoever on self-improvement, on changing their lot, on progression, on progressing or on progress. And because those notions were the very ethos of Victorian uh, civilization, the British, in their inimitable way, concluded that the Aboriginal citizens of Australia weren't human beings at all, and they began to shoot them. And as recently as 1902, if you can believe it, it was debated in Parliament in Australia, in Melbourne, as to whether or not Aboriginal people were human or not. As recently as the 1950s, ranchers in Australia had quotas of how many abos they could shoot with impunity if they traversed their ranches. Uh, Recently, in the 1960s, a school book in Australia, A Treasury of Fauna of Australia, listed the Aboriginal people as amongst the interesting forms of wildlife in the country. Now, what was missing in all of this was an understanding of this subtle devotional philosophy, which was the dreaming. The, the, The Aboriginal people did not choose not to improve their lots because they were foolish or stupid. It was because they chose not to improve their lot. Uh, the whole purpose of life in Australia was, in fact, the antithesis of progress. It was stasis. It was constancy. The, the idea of the dreaming is that one's fidelity is to one's clan territory. And what one must do is not change that land at all. The whole purpose of life in Australia was to do the ritual gestures, in fact, deemed to be necessary to keep the land exactly as it was at the time of the creation of the world. It would be as if all of Western intellectual thought went into pruning the shrubs in the Garden of Eden to keep it as it was when Adam and Eve had their fateful conversation. There was no notion of time or the passage of time, and not one of the 670 dialects and languages of Australia was there a word for past, present, or future, or indeed for time. Now, I'm not saying who's right and wrong. Um, Had humanity as a whole followed that devotional path, yes, we wouldn't have put a man on the moon, but on the other hand, in the long term, we wouldn't be talking about climate change and our capacity to transform the biological life support systems of the planet. So, when you asked earlier, you know how do we how do we bring to light the wonder of these different possibilities for life, these these different interpretations of reality? I think the best way to do it is through storytelling and that really was my mission at the National Geographic over fifteen years when, as a society's social anthropologist, I had been given the mandate to sort of try to changed the way the world viewed and valued culture in a decade. And it was obviously an absurdly ambitious agenda. But the way we tried to approach it was through narratives, recognizing that polemics are not persuasive and politicians are forced to follow rather than lead. But storytellers can change the world. And so we went out on a series of expeditions, if you will, filmmaking projects, not to do what is often done in ethnographic filmmaking, sort of celebrate the exotic other what we really wanted to do is go to places in the world where the beliefs, practices, adaptations, intuitions were so incredibly ingenious that they exemplified this idea that every culture has something to say, each deserves to be heard. And so we went, for example, um, with the Polynesian Voyaging Society into the greatest culture sphere ever brought into being by the human imagination, and that, of course, is Polynesia. And these were sailors who, 10 centuries before Christ, at a time when European transports, if they even existed, were hugging the shores of continents, we know that the ancestors of the Polynesians set sail into the rising sun and over the course of two thousand years even less settled the, the greatest Pacific the greatest ocean on Earth, all through a technique of navigation that had no technical aids as we know it to be. And And so we sailed with the Polynesian voyagers, who even today can name 300 stars in the night sky, who even today can sense the presence of distant tolls of islands beyond the visible horizon simply by watching the reverberation of waves across the hull of the vessel, knowing full well that every island group in the Pacific has its own unique refractive pattern that can be read with the same sort of ease with which a forensic scientist would read a fingerprint. These are sailors who in the darkness of the hull of the vessel can distinguish five or six sea swells moving through the sacred canoe at any one point in time, distinguishing those caused by local weather disturbances from the great currents that sort of pulsate across the ocean and can be followed with the ease with which a terrestrial explorer would follow a river to the sea. And so, in a sense if you took all of the genius that allowed us to put a man on the moon and applied it to an understanding of the ocean what you would get is polynesia and similarly we went to tibet and nepal to do to do a project that we call the buddhist science of the mind you know and you might think well why science for a religion well what is science but the empirical pursuit of the truth what is Tibetan Buddhism, but 2,500 years of direct empirical observation as to the nature of mind. And at one point, we, we went to, uh, to encounter a, a beautiful woman, an elderly woman, who as a young girl had escaped the clutches of a fiance and gone into religious retreat. And for 45 years, she had lived in a single cell, devoting her entire sentient existence to the recitation of a single mantra. And because she was elderly and and now ill and being treated by a friend of mine, a traditional Tibetan doctor, I was able to actually go and meet her. And I watched as the door of her cell opened and sunlight fell upon her face for the first time in 45 years. And by all the terms of reference of my own culture, I should have been greeted by a madwoman, but instead the face that met the sun, radiated loving compassion. And a Lama who was with me said, you know, this is a proof of the efficacy of the science of the mind, that is Tibetan Buddhism, the serenity achieved by the practitioner. And later that night at a nearby monastery, an abbot said to me something quite wonderful. He said, you know, we in Tibet don't believe that you went to the moon, but you did. Uh, you may not believe that we achieve enlightenment in one lifetime, but we do. And I think this is, in a sense, the the, the real lesson, Sam, of anthropology. It's, not, its intent is not to suggest that there's anything wrong with our culture. On the contrary, it celebrates our culture as profoundly as it does all the others in the world. And it's not to suggest that any of us go back to a pre-industrial past or that any people be kept from the genius of modernity anthropology doesn't look back it looks forward and asks the question what kind of world do we want to live in and how can we find a world where all peoples can benefit from the genius for example of our technology without that engagement having to demand the death of who they are as a people in part, that's essential because culture is not trivial. Culture is the glue of civilization. It is culture that allows us to keep the barbaric heart at bay that dwells within all human beings. It's culture that allows us, as Lincoln said, to seek the better angels of our nature, to make sense out of sensation, to find order and meaning in a universe that may have neither. And so culture is not trivial, and when culture is lost, chaos is often the result. But also, it's just to suggest humbly that no one culture is a monopoly on the route to the future. You know, if a Martian came to America, uh, he, she, or it would see marvelous things. And if the measure of success was indeed technological achievement, we would dazzle like no other place. But if they looked at our social structure, they'd ask some obvious questions. You know, you love marriage, but half your marriages end in divorce. You say you love your elders, but only 6% of your homes in the States have grandparents beneath the same roof as grandchildren. You love those kids, but you've got the strange slogan 24 seven, suggesting a total commitment to the workplace. You wonder why those kids, by the time of 18 on average in America, have spent two to three years watching TV or playing video games, uh, contributing to an obesity epidemic that your own senior military officials of the Joint Chiefs have described as a national um, security um, crisis. Uh, You consume, though you think you're happy, you consume two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs, 75% of the prescription opiates. Um, You have an economic system that defines economic well-being as perpetual growth on a finite planet, which seems a contradiction in terms. You pump into your environment hundreds of millions of tons of toxins every day. All of this not to denigrate who we are, but to simply say that if you step back, you'll see that we, too, with all of our aspirations, are also flawed. And we, we, we... are many wonderful things, but we're not the paragon of humanity's potential any more than any culture is. And, you know, back to this notion that every culture has something to say, and each deserves to be at the table of human wisdom. And that, that in a sense, is the the lesson of anthropology, Ruth Benedict, the great anthropologist, once wrote that the purpose of anthropology was to make the world safe for diversity. And by diversity, she didn't mean diversity as it's often described in the media as sort of a a set of sort of entitlements for people of various ethnicities, gender, or orientations. Uh, She meant diversity in the greater sense of the term, you know, the, the full wonder of the human spirit, the full potential of the human soul, as brought into being
1: uh, by culture. I think for those of us who are eating the same cultural meal every single day, and for the folks that are mostly listening to this show, it's the meal that you just described, who I think you're being very generous by saying it's not necessarily denigrating the culture, but the Western culture around our, our, the demands of controlling systems In religion or government or economics or wealth inequities or work that feels meaningless and media that splits us all over the place and just pumping out a lot of responsibility that we then have to keep that engine going. And the problem with eating that meal every single day is that it not only creates a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction to us as we walk from day to day, but it also makes it very hard very very hard to imagine a different meal to eat a different reality that we can have and a lot of the contrast that you painted where i look at a mountain and i see a pile of rocks or i look at a mountain and i see a spirit that's watching over me those are by definition so different those realities are so fractured that it's impossible for us to put on almost like a virtual reality headset beyond our monolingual point of view so can you help people who, since you've traveled the world and dipped into so many pockets of different cultures, can you help us imagine what a day-to-day reality can look like outside of the operating system that most of the people that are listening are working with? Well, I,
0: I think one of the um, the challenges is is the myth of, for example, particularly American exceptionalism. I mean, in a straight political sense, we've seen the dangers of that in terms of the debacle in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years but we we've also you know created a a, um, a society in which the the developments of our society have certain consequences that we somehow remain uh, oblivious to even though they affect us tremendously i mean you know the the In most of the world, for example, the individual has not been liberated, if you will, from the collective, because the collective is a source of of individual survival. And there's a comfort in the collective, um, in the community, that we often have lost. You know, we take it for granted that your brother, Sam, might be living in Miami while you're living in San Francisco, and your parents are retired in the Dakotas, and your aunt lives in Texas, and you may see each other, if you're lucky, once a year. You know, we we live in communities now where we often don't even know our neighbors. We live um, an economic life where work has become defined essentially is looking at a computer screen. I mean, we get up in the morning, we look at a television glass screen, and then we drive to work behind a glass windshield, and then we get to a cubicle at some place and look into a laptop or a computer monitor all day long, and then we go home and watch TV, and then we do it all over again. In other words, there's been a a process, I think, of isolation of the individual, um, both in terms of work in terms of relationships in terms of family and even in terms of the architecture of our urban spaces i mean the the kind of the the classic isolation of life in a suburban environment where all movement is based on the automobile i mean this is the geography of our lives and you, everybody in the audience recognizes how that can create a certain sense of isolation, and and even within our economy, if you think, um, we take it for granted that men and women both work today because we often particularly those of us on the progressive side, in a sense, view that through the lens of the success of the women's movement and the aspirations of, legitimate aspirations of women to find their own destinies. But we forget that when underneath all of that is an economic reality, that just to be aspiring to be middle class today, both man and woman must work. And as a result, that there's a transformation of the nature of family that we have almost not even come, begun to come to terms with. Um, you, you know, whereas not a generation ago, it was a given that there was one person in the home as children grew up, for example. Now, I would argue that that's a good thing. I would I would say that doesn't have to be the woman. I would say it could be the man or the woman, but a primary home giver is surely a good thing for Children, I, I think that's. I think most parents sort of know that, um, but they don't have an option. So I mean, there's there are things that go on in our economy that have social repercussions that um, can be can can really um, have, have tremendous impact. And as I look around the world, you, you know, I, I I see not that there's anything to celebrate in poverty. But the idea that all contentment will come through and exclusively through material well-being is kind of an illusion that most of the saints and holy men of the world have cautioned us about since the dawn of time. Um, And when you do have a society like North America, where personal well-being, family well-being is almost universally defined as economic well-being, you set yourself up for tremendous disappointment um, a, for those who cannot find the material well-being to support their lives, and those for whom no level of material success is ever enough. And certainly in my travels around the world, um, I've never come to romanticize poverty. Um, it, it can be a, a tremendous prison. But on the other hand, I have spent most of my time in communities where Everybody basically has the same amount of stuff. Everybody seems to eat pretty well, and everybody seems to look after each other. And that does seem to create a certain sense of well-being. You know, I lived for a long time with the nomadic Penan in the forests of Sarawak in Borneo in Southeast Asia. And I was really taken not just by their way of life, but a certain quality of being, Sam. And in that society, in that language there was no word for thank you because um, everything was reflexively shared um, you never knew who was going to bring the food to the table it was a hunting society and so there was a tremendous social um, support for people getting along because if for example you and i with our families if you and i argued sam and went our separate ways in the forest by definition your children and my children would have a 50 percent less chance of eating that night I I once gave a cigarette to an old woman in a Penan encampment in the forest and watched as she tore it apart to distribute the individual strands of tobacco equitably to every hut in the encampment, rendering the product useless, honoring her obligation to share. And in in a nomadic society like that, it was fascinating to, to ponder the question, how do you measure wealth? In a place where there's not only not an incentive to acquire material possessions, but an absolute disincentive to do so, because ultimately everything has to be carried on your back as you move encampments um, on 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 a regular basis. And in that society, as I came to understand, the measure of wealth, as we would use the term, was actually defined by the strength of social relations between people. Because if those relationships frayed, as I suggested, everybody could suffer. So, you know, I mean, I think one of the, the fascinating things about anthropology is um, you look around the world, and almost every culture faces the same adaptive imperatives. I mean, everybody has kids; they've got to educate their kids, initiate their kids, allow their kids to come together with other kids to couple in a in a consistent way to produce new families. Um, everybody's got to deal with the misery of old age, everybody's got to deal with the inexorable mystery that death represents. And and yet, given that common and adaptive imperative, uh, human societies around the world have come up with so many different and wondrous uh, adaptations and responses to the challenges of being alive as humans. And, you know, I I think that it's, it's worth remembering the, the cautionary note that Margaret Mead sounded before she passed away when she said that her greatest worry was that as we drifted toward a kind of blandly amorphous generic world, not only would the entire range of the human imagination be reduced to a more narrow singular modality of thought, but that we might wake as if from a dream to realize and forget rather that these other possibilities of life had ever existed and I, I think part of the mission of anthropology is to um, help keep those voices alive as as models and lessons for all of us.
1: I recently did a show with a photographer, Jock Sturgis, and he was talking about how people, thanks to Facebook, are really aligning culturally around the world around things like body shaming and censoring nudity and a lot of... A lot of messages that are being enacted on them where a Western sense of shame is then introduced to places in the world that don't have that. And to me, it feels a little bit like we're dinosaurs and technology is our comet, kind of destined to wipe us out. So as I listen to you and I think about just how beautiful and how amazing and wondrous these different cultures are, I also feel completely and utterly out of control and i'm wondering what personal and governmental and any kind of decisions that we can make as individuals and as systems to try to change the course of this globalization or if it's just out of control like well
0: i think i think you know it it um Um, We can look back and actually find cause for real optimism. You know, if you think about it, Sam, uh, 50 years ago, just getting people to stop throwing garbage out of a car window was a great environmental victory. Nobody spoke about um, uh, biodiversity or the biosphere. Now, those terms are part of the language of school children. You know, within my lifetime, women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, gay people from the closet to the altar. I mean, what's not to love about a, a world capable of such social changes and innovations? So, you know, I, I, I tend to be quite quite optimistic in that, in, in, in part because I view pessimism as as an indulgence. Um, you know, we're all moving forward, and the question is, how do we push our shoulders to the wheel of history such that, the, that, that, that it may unfold in, in, in the kind of progressive and hopeful ways that we all um, um, dream of for, for our children, if nothing else. And um, you know, I, 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 I think that we're, um, you know, for all the negative, there's so much good going on out there. I mean, when I think, for example, of when I first lived in Columbia. Uh, one of my favorite countries in the world, and a country where incidentally peace is about to out- outbreak—a uh, break out after 50 years of violence caused largely by Western consumption of cocaine. Um, you know, when I first went to Colombia in the early 70s, and I would go to live with the Arawakos and the Kogi, the elder brothers in the extraordinary societies who who live in the Sierra Nevada, Santa Marta, this volcanic massif that soars to 20,000 feet out of the Caribbean coastal plain, um in a sense in a blood-stained continent the one set of cultures never vanquished by the spanish and to this day they remain ruled by a by a priesthood of of mamos and sacerdotes and they literally believe that their prayers and rituals maintain the cosmic balance of the world and they speak in full sentences and paragraphs about our need to change the ways we interact with the natural world You know, when I first went to live with them in the 70s, uh, parents of friends of mine in Bogota would say, you know, ¿Por qué quiere vivir con la gente sucio? Why do you want to go live with the dirty people? Well, the last five or six Colombian presidents, as of all parties, as a first act of office, um, have been a, a mission to go to the Sierra to seek the support, the blessing of the Mamos, who have emerged as sort of symbols of incredible continuity in a country that's been torn apart by war and violence. You know, when people ask me, well, what can we do to facilitate cultural survival? Um, first of all, recognize the integrity of and legitimacy of these diverse voices of humanity, and then facilitate that cultural survival. You know, I uh, have a good friend of mine, Martin von Hildebrand, who, as a young anthropologist, was made head of Indian affairs by a great Colombian president, Virgilio Barco, and Virgilio said to Martin, do something for the Indians. And in five remarkable years, Martin in the Northwest Amazon did more than than, uh, something. He secured legal land tenure for 57 ethnicities to an area of land collectively the size of the United Kingdom. And behind the veil of isolation created by the absence of the federal state, a whole new dream of culture was born. And some years ago, I went back with Stephen Hugh Jones, head of anthropology at Cambridge, and Martin to make a film among the Barasana and the Makuna. And as we entered a longhouse um, during a three-day celebration of Cassava Woman, Stephen, who had just flown in in a small bush plane, couldn't believe his eyes as he saw 250 men and women in full ritual regalia in this extraordinary three-day event. And he participated years before in a BBC program called Disappearing Worlds, and he had anticipated the disappearance of the Bodhasana because of the pressures they were under from missionaries in the 1970s. He looked up and couldn't believe his eyes. He jumped in the satellite phone to his wife back in London and said, Christine, you won't believe my eyes. The only thing that disappeared are the missionaries. And, and you know, we we forget that we can actually do things that make changes. We asked some of the elders later that week why they had tolerated the presence of missionaries and uh, and saying what they were doing and and, uh, impacting the societies as they did. And the elders said to us, because the missionaries promised, promised us they could make us human, and of course this is the essence of colonization, is to persuade the colonized of their own inherent inferiority. And throughout the world, nation states at once ridiculed or found themselves embarrassed by indigenous people or recognizing that indigenous people, in fact, strengthen the state if the state's prepared to accept diversity. You know, in my youth, we in Canada did not particularly treat the Inuit of the North with any amount of grace and decency. Um, But now we've given back to 27,000 Inuit people, a new territory half the size of Western Europe, which is known as Nunavut, and a whole new dream of culture is being reborn. You know the essence of the colonial encounter is, as um, Justice Sinclair, who led our reconciliation um, process, really uh, residential schools in Canada, said. You know the three questions in life: Who am I? Where am I coming from? And where am I going? And when the missionaries arrived. They essentially said to all of these societies all around the world that all of their answers for all of these questions, for all of their history had been wrong. And that was a devastating psychological impact, and it was frankly based on utter untruth. So I actually see around the world, particularly facilitated by the internet, which is becoming a kind of global campfire that the internet has actually empowered indigenous people because they're no longer feeling isolated. And if something's going on in Borneo, the folks are trans, are communicating with someone in Brazil who puts them in touch with someone in Africa. And there's a kind of a whole international sense that um, these cultures all deserve a place. And so, although the trends are disturbing, particularly in terms of language loss. The good news is we still have 7,000 languages. We still have this repository of knowledge. And it's simply time to do something about it, to celebrate it and not to preserve it because one does not preserve cultures. Cultures aren't set theater pieces, but rather facilitate the decisions of indigenous people to choose the components of their own lives as they, like
1: us, move forward into a new world. It sounds like how we work to frame and define diversity and then protect the clarity of that diversity and why it's important the way that we protect almost like a state park is super critical. Are there some cultures though that maybe shouldn't exist? There's a lot of finger pointing of very harmful cultures, you know, maybe ISIL or Nazis.
0: Well, you know, I think that's a great, great question, Sam, a really important question, because anthropologists and, and, anthropologists, uh, and anthropology uh, are often, um, you know, accused of embracing a kind of extreme relativism, as if every trade a culture has to be protected simply because it exists. As if, as if, Sam, as you suggest, we could defend the Nazis because after all, they had a religion of sorts, they had a language and they had an ideology. No, it's so important for people to understand that anthropology never calls for the elimination of judgment. Anthropology only calls for the suspension of judgment so that the very judgments that we as human beings are all ethically and morally obliged to make can be informed ones. You know, the there are certain traits of culture that could readily be on the dustbin of history um, without that implying the death of the cultures or or any serious impact on those cultures. And I would, I would venture to say that extreme female mutilization and initiation would be one set, such practice that the world could certainly do without. But I think the anthropological lens is more usefully used when it's focused upon cultural practices of which we have no understanding, but about which we cause, we, we have great judgments. And, you know, a great example of that in my experience, of course, has been voodoo. I mean, we think of voodoo as a black magic cult. It's simply a word from Dahomey that means spirit or God. I mean, were I to ask you, Sam, to name the great religions of the world, one part of the world that would be left out would be sub-Saharan Africa, the tacit assumption being that African people had no religion. Of course, by ethnographic definition, they did. And voodoo is simply the distillation of very profound ideas about the relationship between the living and the dead and the nature of life itself. Um, You know, know, so I, I think that... You you know, anthropology gives us this flexibility of of intuition and mind, so another example would be the incredible reaction that people in the West have to the tradition in a place like the Middle East or Saudi Arabia of having women veiled either partially or totally. It, It seems almost incredible to us this would happen. But it's useful to remember that from the point of view of someone from the Middle East when they look our way what do they see they see the fact that we put naked girls in teenage you know teen in, in advertisements in underwear underwear on the cover of every magazine now as a father of a daughter who nearly died of anorexia i'm acutely sensitive to the portrayal of young girls in the media and i would frankly rather have my daughter not that she does but she might wear a headscarf than her be portrayed half naked in a universe of uh, that celebrates um emaciation and denies young girls the right to have their own bodies i mean so it it, it's not to knock any one side but to try to give us some perspective and understanding as to what goes on around the world you know i i remember a tibetan monk once said to me you know um he, he said western science is too often a major response to minor needs. He said, you in the West spend all of your lifetimes trying to live to be 100 without losing your teeth. We spend all of our lifetimes trying to understand the the nature of existence. He said, you in the West celebrate naked teenagers on billboards. Uh, Our billboards are money walls of prayer stones, um, prayers for the well-being of all sentient creatures. So again, it's just to try to give us all a little bit of perspective before we rush to judgment.
1: I was just reading from anthropologist John Hawks that actually our species brain size is on a downward spiral over the last, I guess, I think he's saying around 20,000 years, which is a major downsizing and a pretty evolutionary blink, and no one seems to know why, but it, it would seem to me that that timeline maps somewhat closely to when widespread agriculture kind of came into being, and when you fast forward today, regardless of which culture you're in, there's an increasing ease to get to food, to get to a lot of the things that we would have had to have worked to get to in the past. And I'm wondering whether those these cultural systems that we've developed that make access to those things could be the very things that are actually also, I don't know, making us dumber.
0: <laughs> you no, know, Sam, it's a cool idea. I mean, an interesting idea. You know, one of the, it's worth for the audience to understand, where did we get this idea of this evolution of societies that led to putting us at the apex of the pyramid? You know, anthropology grew in the 19th century, heavily influenced by Darwin and there was a sense that if species evolved, didn't cultures evolve? And then, so as a result, there, there were these sort of ideas that in different cultures represented different sort of um, set pieces on an imagined evolutionary development that, of course, ended up with us because we were at the top of the pyramid. And we defined the top of mm-hmm. the pyramid by technology. And since technologically we were superior, we kind of, you know, we stacked the deck in the sense because we, we made the criteria criterion of success just what we were the most successful at, so invariably we ended up at the top of the heap, and and that idea that these other cultures are primitive, that we're advanced, obviously persists um, uh, to to this day, and we have these sort of you know things we learn in school that you know um, you know writing came along and was this great advance of civilization. Well, writing was a wonderful thing, but by definition it was a tool designed to dull memory and. If you go to societies that don't have the written word, you find that the the acuity of memory is astonishing, and the entire knowledge of the society becomes encoded in the vocabulary the best storyteller. Or, for example, we sort of think of agriculture as being this huge advance in civilization. But if you actually step back from it, you realize that when you look at body size, um, the human beings got smaller in the wake of agriculture because they had a much more... Less rich diet; uh, there may it allowed for population growth, but with a carbohydrate based diet um, that actually limited limited physical growth. So, so nutrition did not actually improve with new, with um, the birth of agriculture
1: and forced breeding. By the way, and population
0: expanded, but we also brought in as we domesticated animals. All these handful of a dozen or more domesticated animals into close proximity with human populations and virtually every major disease that later came to haunt humanity from the plague to HIV was vectored by a domestic animal into the human population in the wake of agriculture. So there's, so there's a many, and by the same token, nomadic societies are not constantly on the move through space. They have defined areas they go through in a homeland that becomes part of the matrix of the fiber of their being that they protect whereas agriculture it's really agriculture that becomes almost like a, a physical cancer that mows down the forest and mows down the natural world in this process of domestication so that's not to say that i don't eat bread it's just to say that it's always useful to look back and challenge some of these classic kind of eurocentric Notions of history that, that that really were the the myths that we grew up on um, in in school as kids, and of course those myths contribute to, for example, this notion, particularly in the states, of a certain exceptionalism that leads us to do um, gestures that are totally counterproductive for the world and for ourselves. The, the ultimate example of which, of course, in the last 30 years has been the invasion of Iraq. And if you sit back objectively, you recognize that over the last 20 years, um, sadly, the United States, a country that I admire enormously, a country I chose to join as a citizen and very proud to be a citizen of the States. But you'd have to be blind not to see that we have, in fa- fact, over the last 20 years, shattered every country we have set out
1: to save. When you look at the explosive political situation in the US, what does it say about what's happening to American culture?
0: You know, America, bless it, has always been the best of all things and the worst of all things. I mean, you know, you know, we, we it is this frenzy of opportunity as a result of that and of, 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 of challenges. I mean, it was settled not by people who came over for religious freedom, as the myth goes. It was, in fact, settled by individuals who came over to practice their own breed of religious intolerance. And the English couldn't wait to get rid of them. I mean, we, you know, it's always been the country of Walt Whitman and Abraham Lincoln and the Grateful Dead. It's also been the country of um, Joseph, you know, McCarthy and xenophobia, racism, you, know, conflict. I mean it, 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 I think one of the reasons America has been so extraordinary um, is that it kind of embodies the reality of human existence, which is that they're always as good and they're always as evil. And, and when Americans are frightened, um, sometimes they do not do as Lincoln urged them to do. They don't listen to the better angels of their nature, and they invoke kind of uh, xenophobic um, instincts and fears. And and when you have a situation where politicians uh, fuel the flames of fear, it becomes a very, very dangerous situation indeed. I mean, I've always thought, for example, in the wake of the terrible events of nine eleven. Had we had a Lincoln, had we had a Roosevelt, um, who famously said, there's nothing to fear but fear itself, um, we might not have reacted as we did. We might certainly and ought certainly to have sought vengeance for the victims of 9-11. But that did not necessarily imply invading a country that was a block of stability in the Middle East and a country that had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11 and setting in motion a kind of chain reaction of, of destruction that the world will be dealing with for a hundred years. Um, instead, we did have a, 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 a political leader at the time who I think in his personal uncertainty um, and pushed by certain people around him deliberately fueled the flames of fear for political ends. And I think that that was probably the most... Um, uh, unpatriotic thing that a president could ever have done. And we're dealing with the consequences of it every day, uh, and will be doing so for a very long time to come. You know, in the short term, the good news is that America always writes itself, and it always does find a way to get back to that place of decency and honor upon which the country was founded. And, um, you know, that's certainly my hope. I mean, I think in the in the short term, um, You know the the ascendancy of Donald Trump is is simply a matter of the Republican Party being forced to uh, reap what they sowed. I mean, once the Republican Party in 1980, in particular, but going back to Richard Nixon in '68, um, once the party began to to suggest that Washington D.C., the center of American democracy, the place where the representatives gathered, as they gathered at the time of Sam Adams and George Washington, uh, that the Congress itself was somehow the enemy. Once a party turned against the ultimate symbol of American democracy, the U.S. Congress, um, you knew they were pandering to fear, and you knew that in the end they would have to reap what they sowed, and that's what's happened now. I find it particularly ironic that people like Mitt Romney, people like the Bush family, are finding themselves completely indignant at the thought that Trump has usurped um, the place that they thought was destined for their own children, when in fact the fears that have led him to that success and placed him in this extraordinary position to be one of the two candidates for the highest office in the land, um, that was all their creation. And in the same way that George Bush um, George Hubert, you know the senior Bush, uh, exploited the um, the the terrible image of the um, uh, of the African American felon um, to strike fear in the hearts of America to defeat Dukakis. Um, the same way that they use fear to turn people against government, uh, as opposed to sending people to government to change government. Um, I think all Of that has come back to haunt them, and I think this election will transform the Republican Party um, and uh, leave it in some sense in, in pieces uh, that will have to be put back together again in some way. I mean, I say that not as an avid Democrat or an avid um, partisan. I mean, my father in law was one of the last of the great liberal Republican senators, Senator Charles Percy of Illinois, one of the greatest men. I've ever met and I can promise you that granddaddy would be turning over in his grave at some of the language coming out of the Republican nominee today.
1: Wade, we've talked a lot about the importance of cultural diversity, but I want to spend a second on unity. And it reminds me a little bit of, I guess, when I've read some of the things from mythologist Joseph Campbell, who spent a lot of time describing the patterns and archetypes that unite us as people. And I wonder how, as someone who has a wealth of cultural perspective, the kind of wealth that none of us could ever possibly imagine having, how you might do that from a cultural perspective. What are those things that stand out, poke above the the clouds of separation that really we share in a human experience
0: well, Sam, let me tell you a story that begins on a ridge in Borneo with thunder over the valley and the entire forest alive with the electrifying sound of black cicadas. And I was sitting by a fire with an old friend of mine, Asik Ni'ilik, who was the headman of the Ubong River Penan, the last nomadic people of Southeast Asia. And the storms had passed and the light of a moon shone through the canopy. And Asik looked up at the moon and he turned to me and he asked me if it was true that people had traveled there. Uh, If so, he said, what kind of transport had we had, how long had it taken, and was it true that we came back with nothing more than rock and dust? And I must tell you, it was difficult to explain to a man who kindled fire with Flint, a space program that consumed the wealth of a nation and catapulted collectively some 12 men over many billion miles together um, to the moon, or the fact that they did come back with nothing but rock and dust, 828 pounds of it altogether. But a Sikh's question, of course, provoked the timeless answer. We didn't go to the moon to secure new wealth, but to realize a new vision of life itself. And the seminal moment occurred on Christmas Eve 1968, when Apollo went around the dark side of the moon for the first time. And for the first time in human experience, we, we came to see not a sunrise or a moonrise, but an actual Earth rise. This, and as the astronaut so eloquently said, this blue planet veiled in mist, um, floating in the velvet void of space. And I think that image, which after all is not yet fifty years old, um, will be spoken about for five thousand years. And the minute we saw that image of the Earth from space, everything changed. Um, we're still catching up with the consequences of that revelation. But I think that that image of the space, suddenly in a single moment, we saw that the Earth was not this flat land um, of, of, of sort of inf- infinite horizons, but was in fact a very small blue orb, um, completely and utterly interconnected. And all of the astronauts have shared their their personal reflections on that moment. and. And almost all of them have reflected on the, on the absurdity of the notion of the nation state and the petty conflicts that, that tear apart these, these, these countries, um, which are only imaginary lines drawn on a map and viewed from space. Who can tell where Rwanda is and who can tell where Egypt is and who can tell where Colombia is? And I, I think that, you know, history moves in mysterious ways. And when you're floating on the river of history, you don't really know where the current's going to take you or the velocity of the flow, but you are moving forward. And And I think that we will look back literally thousands of years um, from now and reflect on that single moment on Christmas Eve 1968 as a massive turning point in the development of human consciousness. And if we can only get through the next, you know, century, uh, and I think climate change, in its own way, uh, for all of its um, dire um, uh, impacts, uh, has emerged as a kind of unifying principle, unlike anything we've ever had, including the fear of nuclear um, uh, extinction through through war. You know, we're suddenly realizing that human activities across the board um, have had this impact on the biosphere. Um, It's something that everybody can sense. Now, I want to reiterate, though, it's important to recall that climate change has become humanity's problem. But it wasn't caused by humanity. It was caused by a very narrow subset of humanity, which gave us this industrial model only 300 years ago. And one thing I've tra- I've noticed in my travels amongst indigenous people, rather sadly, is that we forget that for us, climate change may be a technical challenge, a political debate, um, you know, a scientific um, set of uh, inquiries, whatever. Uh, But for most indigenous people who actually feel that because of their reciprocal relationships and obligations to the earth, they are, if something goes wrong, at fault. And throughout the world, indigenous people who played no role in the creation of this dilemma are actually, by the terms of reference of their own societies, through ritual activities, uh, in a sense taking climate change more seriously than the rest of us whose worldview was responsible for its creation.
1: So, Wade, having visited all of these different cultures, what still surprises you? The universal, universality
0: of love. Um, the, the fact that hospitality remains the, the international language. The fact that I can turn up the doorstep of any culture anywhere in the world and within an, a few minutes understand at least something of the rhythms of that culture and Knowing that if I simply do and behave as I would behave, Sam, if you invited to me your home at Thanksgiving, if I I think of that and if I behave there just as I would on the doorstep of your house, um, not only will all be well, but I'll be welcomed in and I'll find a way to break down that barrier that divides me as um, a stranger from becoming a guest in a home. And those traits of character are are very straightforward. Um, good manners, decency, self-deprecating humor, a willingness to eat what's put in front of me and sleep where I'm asked to sleep, a willingness to help out in any way that I can. And the fact that I can go to any culture in the world in any circumstances and still find that, that sense of grace, that welcoming, that hospitality, that desire for universal connection and love, um, it's that kind of thing that allows us to remain optimistic. I'll tell you finally a short story. I, I traveled in the immediate wake of 9-11 to the Sahara because I wanted to tell a story of the nature, the essence of Islam. And I traveled north of Timbuktu a thousand kilometers to an ancient salt mine that had been worked since the 8th century, a time when salt traded ounce for ounce with gold in West Africa. And I met a man who had been trapped in um, debt, working in horrific conditions at this mine, even in the heat of the summer. And I found out that his debt, from which he would never escape, was less than the price of a dinner in New York. I paid off his debt, and as he said thank you and bade me farewell, a sandstorm swept across the desert and enveloped him in a kind of yellow haze, and I never found out whether he was killed for the money I gave him, whether he found his way to freedom, or whether he was even telling me the truth. But as I came south, I came upon a caravan going from the mine to Timbuktu, and a rainstorm had struck them, and the salt had gotten wet, and they had been obliged to wait in the desert for the salt to dry out, or it would crack and lose all value. They were down to one liter of water, and as I approached them, they had sent one man off with a camel to dig deep in the sand 25 kilometers distant where they thought they might find an ancient riverbed that might yield some water. And as I came upon them, what did they do with that last liter of water? There were 12 men. They were 150 miles from the nearest well. And with their last liter of water, they kindled a twig fire and brewed me tea, doing what they had to do, honor the obligation of Bedouin hospitality, where which says that you must slaughter the last goat that keeps the mil- gives you the milk that keeps your children alive to feed the stranger that comes out of the darkness, because you never know when you will be that stranger in the desert, cold, hungry, dying of thirst, coming in in search of rescue. And as I watched them pour me a cup of tea uh, from their last liter of water, I thought to myself, these are the moments,
1: Sam, that allow us all to hope. Wade, the light that you shine on the diversity of the world is one of the most beautiful lights. Thank you so much for the poetry of your work and for being on Grow Big Always.
0: My pleasure, Sam. Thanks a lot.
1: I was incredibly happy to get Wade Davis on the show. I've been a huge fan of his for a very long time. He's amazing to listen to. So a huge thank you goes out to him. For those of you who have not signed up for the Grow Big Always newsletter, it's a way to see who's coming up next on the show. Ask those people questions. You can even record yourself asking them a question, and they'll answer it for you. So until next time, and thanks for listening.